0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. All right, John 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Thank you, guys. You know, as we step into a new year together as a church and community and uh, as a family here, I want to spend a couple of weeks together discussing some of the things that our elder team have discussed and prayed for over the second half of this past year. And these topics, there will be four of them. They're things that either we've discussed collectively as a team or as I've sat with the individual elders on the church, they're things that have been brought up and that we've discussed. And they are undoubtedly things for me personally that I'm burdened with and things that I pray for specifically for our church. So my hope this year is that if you're with us, that for us as a church, we would grow together in humility, in service, in generosity, and prayer. So those are the four things that we're going to discuss over the first four weeks that I can be with you and that we can be together as a church. We're going to speak about unity through humility. We're going to speak then about service and submission, and then generosity as a joy, and then prayer as an expression of love. Now, I'll tell you honestly, I've never claimed to be a prophet a single day in my life. But I'd like to make a prediction as we roll into a new year. I want to call my shot on two things. First, that the closer that we get to 2030, the more you're going to see best-selling books that all of a sudden are hitting the shelves about Jesus' return coming in 2030. After all, it's 2,000 years after his death and resurrection is how they'll be promoted, and their math will be bad, and probably their theology will be worse. So that's one prediction. Here's my second thing that I'll predict for you. I'll just take a shot in the dark that because we're rolling into an election year, that this will be a radically charged year in our community and country. And that because of that, what we're going to find is that we're back into a very divided era of time. That that's what this This year will look like, I think, for us as a country, that it'll be a very divisive year and in communities even like ours, even in families around tables, stretching from the East Coast to the West, that it will be a time where people feel the intensity of the division that will exist around us. So, because of that, I've placed our discussion as we're rolling into this series about growing together. I've placed our discussion on unity as the first of the series because I believe it's potentially the most pressing and timely discussion for us to have. Now, I want to remind you as we begin, then, why unity even matters to us. And our reason is found right in that passage that was just read to you Jesus' own words in John 17. You know, for many of us, when we think of the Lord's Prayer, we begin to, in our own minds, recite probably a prayer from Matthew chapter 6, where you remember that Jesus said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We know the prayer, but really it's not necessarily the Lord's prayer. It's more specifically the Lord's prayer that he taught the disciples. It really is the disciples' prayer, something that Jesus used to teach us how we ought to pray. But if you want to find the moment in time where you see the Lord praying and sharing His own heart and His own deepest desire in prayer, you find it here in John 17. It's why it's been pointed out by many scholars and preachers alike throughout the ages that this is the true Lord's prayer because it's not Him teaching you to pray, it's Him praying for you. See, in John 17, Jesus is recognizing that His hour, as He's talked about throughout the gospel, His hour has finally come. That hour has come for him to suffer and for him to endure all that he came to endure on a cross. That's what he's saying. So Jesus, because he's aware that that hour has finally arrived, that it's time for him to suffer in our place, he begins to pray and he prays about three different things. The first is for himself. That he and the Father would be glorified as he would step forward to suffer, and that many would find eternal life in believing and embracing him and his true identity that would be revealed in his suffering and in his resurrection. But he doesn't just pray for himself, he then prays for the first century disciples who are around him, praying that the Father would keep them, he says in John 17, where other translations say protect them. And the specifics of that prayer were not merely a request to keep and protect them from their enemy, the devil. No, he actually is praying that God would keep and protect the unity that existed within them. That was his concern. But then Jesus' mind goes to a third thing, a third topic that he prays for, and it's future followers of Jesus. It's you and I that he prays for. Don't miss this. He's praying for us. And what he prays for us is that we would be unified. Look again at verse 20. I do not pray for these, speaking of his disciples that were present in that moment with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. That they also may be one as you, Father, and me and I in you. And that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. My goal today in talking about unity with you, that we're striving for unity through humility, my goal is to observe three simple things. And the first is even more clear than it is simple in what Jesus teaches here in John 17. The first thing is this, and if you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write this down. It's that unity is the desire of Jesus for his church. The first thing, and it's so important, I know it's so simple and it's so clear, but it's that unity is the desire for Jesus for his church. And this is true for our church, and it is undoubtedly true for the capital C church, the universal church throughout the ages that exists that makes up every follower of Jesus that lands in every independent church. You see, without a doubt, we have a part to play in preserving unity in the capital C church by choosing grace and patience toward those who might worship differently than us, Or teach differently, or even think differently than we do. But those people are still included and counted as members of the capital C church. It means that we need to be careful to only condemn in other quote unquote Christian churches what scripture specifically clearly marks as essential that they have discarded. And to make sure that we're not just going after our own preferences or convictions on secondary, tertiary issues. But I'd argue that our role in preserving unity in our church is even greater. Please hear me, Christian unity is far removed from images of uniformity. Don't picture everyone needing to look alike, or dress alike, or think alike, or prefer the same style of music, or rooting for the same sports team, or even voting for the same candidate. It's not uniformity we're after. Unity is not that. It's not uniformity. It's a loving commitment to Jesus and to one another in the midst of our diversity. As we've said often here, and prepare to hear it even more in in the coming years, especially as we roll into a time that I do think will be very divisive, as we've said often, our church should look a lot like the DMV. It really should but with a smile on its face. Because while the DMV is a melting pot for people of all races and ages and walks of life, they're all in one room just to suffer. That's why they're there. While we come here into this room every week of all races, ages, opinions, preferences, and walks of life, we come here into this room to celebrate, not to suffer. That's the difference. And I'm convinced that there's two different ways for us to discuss unity One way is just to talk about unity, and the other would be actually to look at the things that divide us. But I'll tell you, that's dangerous. It's much safer just to say, let's talk about unity and forget all the things that could divide us. Because to even talk about them can be dangerous and cause people to divide. But I think it's the way that we ought to do it. I don't think you build unity simply by talking about unity. I think we do it by graciously addressing the things that could divide us, and with humility, Holding on to them, choosing to hold on to them with such an open hand that they are easily released. So if you're getting nervous already about where this might go, I want you to know that my goal today is not to roll a bunch of grenades into a crowd of people and wait to see what happens. My goal is to humbly challenge all of us, myself included, as a church. To humbly ask us to choose humility this year and to choose to pursue unity together. Now, if I do offend you, I'm available. I don't hide. You can come and talk to me, and I'd love to chat. But what I want to take some time to do today is to embark as we begin on a little bit of a thought experiment together with you. So get comfortable as we choose to do this, and don't set your standard or expectation very high. You're already seeing buckets out, and you're like, wow, something creative. No one's ever accused me of being creative. So don't get too excited. You know, as a a chaplain with the local uh, first responders, the fire department I often get to watch these firefighter paramedics show up on the scene of an accident and triage the scene. It happens quickly when a crew arrives on a scene and there's multiple injuries that have been sustained and they have to quickly assess the situation and then prioritize whose injuries are most urgent. I could give you an example of this. It's not a real example, but if we showed up at, at a scene and I just happen to be a fly on the wall or you happen to pull up and see it too, they would bypass the person with the broken nail and skin knee who who fell off their bicycle when they ran into a pedestrian, they'd bypass that person to go after the pedestrian that the cyclist drove into oncoming traffic before they were struck by a moving vehicle. They'd bypass the skin, knee, and crack nail to go after the person who might have far more serious or potentially even a life-threatening injury. They refer to it as triaging. So today what I want to do with you is a a little theological triaging. So these four buckets in front of you, they're not to be confused with trash cans because they're, they will each hold things that are, are way more valuable than just trash. They'll hold and house important things. However, there's four different ones that are each distinct and different from each neighboring can in respect to their urgency and priority. So bucket number one, and if you're in the back, I apologize. Just tell the people in the front to put their head down. Bucket number one makes up things that are essential. But bucket number two makes up things that they aren't essential, but they are urgent. They do really matter. But bucket number three, we could place things that we classify as important. Okay, again, they're not essential. They're not necessarily even urgent but they are important, but maybe less urgent. And then there's a fourth bucket that we could throw other things in. And and this would be things that still matter, but are less important than the others. We'll do some theological triaging. It's a term that an author by the name of Albert Moeller is credited with First Corning. It's the thoughtful evaluation of the urgency of differing theological matters and then drawing careful distinction between them. Because what you think about John the Baptist and his diet of locust and honey and whether or not it exclusively consisted of the bald locusts that are referenced in Leviticus 11 or if it also involved other critters and little bugs too, your opinion on that is less important than what you think of Jesus' claim to deity. Because what you think of Jesus' claim to deity could have catastrophic implications and theologically could be a matter of life and death. So to triage that is to make sure that we set them as two separate categorical entities, and one would land in, in a far more urgent or even essential category, where the other one is something that, well, I mean, I guess it matters, but it really matters far less than these other things. Now, maybe as soon as we're already even beginning to talk about this, maybe you're already a little suspect and wondering, like, is this even right? Right? Like, is this even biblical thinking or a correct or proper way to engage with theology? After all, how could some issues of theology be less important than others? Well, let me have Paul the Apostle speak to this, because he seemed to do this very thing, where he gives distinction and difference in priority and significance of some of the theological matters, uh, of some theological matters over other theological matters that he addresses in his epistles. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, he mentions matters of first importance. We place these in the essentials bucket, which he mentions as the authority of Scripture, the death of Jesus for our sin, and his uh, subsequent burial and resurrection according to the Scripture's prophetic foresight. He referred to those as essential things. He called them matters of first importance, Whereas in the book of Romans, chapter 14, verse 5, Paul addresses things that he refers to as matters of personal conviction regarding the observance of holy days and dietary choices that you make based on Old Testament writings that you have. You see, he takes them, making it very clear in the Bible that that this theological triaging, systematically prioritizing our theological convictions is not a new or even a reckless or rogue thing to attempt to do. With even the Apostle Paul differentiating between things that he categorically called matters of first importance, while other things he left us to wrestle through, calling them matters of personal conviction. And you see this echoed throughout church history by many prominent individuals, with people like 16th century Protestant reformer John Calvin commenting, and I quote, that not all the articles of true doctrine are of the same sort he continued and said, a difference of opinion over these non-essential matters should in no wise be the basis of schism or split amongst Christians. There's an old adage, and it might be true, that there's no doctrine that a fundamentalist won't fight over. And there's no doctrine that a liberal will fight over. But we would be wise to try to find some middle ground there between those two groups. Because I hope that you are clear that there are some hills undoubtedly worth dying on. In fact, followers of Jesus throughout the ages have literally become martyrs over some of those things, being willing to die on some of those hills. However, we need to be equally clear on the fact that there are many hills that are not worth dying on. I mean, make no mistake, the gospel, it's complex because it holds both truth and grace within it. And we then are expected to hold it both with truth and with grace and knowing how to do that is complicated for each one of us myself included I read a pair of books at the end of this last year that highlighted this very thing that we're talking about both of which I'd happily recommend to the first is Don't Hold Back by David Platt and the second is entitled Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortlin uh, which is actually out on our updated resource table that you can take a look at today um, but what I want to do is let's do some theological triaging for a couple of minutes. Let's talk about the first bucket. This was what we classify as these are the essential things to the gospel itself. Without them, there is no good news. The Apostle Paul, he outlined a couple of things for us. Remember what we quoted earlier from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He, he gave a couple of things. The first was the Bible's authority. He said that this was essential, a matter of first importance, not just the Bible's authority, but he also referenced the substitutionary death of Jesus, a matter of first importance. And then also he mentions Jesus' resurrection. But we know that there's more than just that. We could add other things, too. We know that without the consequence for sin, then there's no need for a Savior, and that throughout the Bible, from the beginning to the end, sin is referenced, and its consequence and our need for a Savior. So the consequence of sin would need to be essential. Salvation by grace is something that you see, specifically the Apostle Paul, fight for as an essential, as well as, the book of Galatians should come to mind for you, justification that comes by faith. Beginning with Abraham all throughout the ages, this is essential. Things like the hypostatic union, or even we could throw the Trinity inside of this bucket. These things are essential. Now here's the thing. Some people might not be able to fully articulate these things. They may grow in the knowledge and understanding of these essential things over time. Picture the thief on the cross. I don't know if Jesus said, hey, before I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. I need you to break down the Trinity do you get it? I don't think he'd need to do that any more than someone maybe even here who who might believe in Jesus but might not even know what it means when I read the title hypostatic union. Your mind went with a big question mark going, what in the world is he talking about? All it means is it means the, the substance that Jesus is made of. It's speaking of Jesus. It's a theological term that speaks of the dual nature of Christ, that he was fully man and yet fully God. However, if you don't quite know or have a grasp on these things, it does not mean that you would be excluded from salvation. But if someone were to reject and deny these things, these core theological doctrines, these things Paul said were really of first importance, then we could believe that you would be excluded from Christendom. Because these first bucket issues represent 1st rank doctrines. They are essential to the gospel itself. Without them, the good news is not what God has intended it to be, and it's really not that good anymore if those things are removed. Now, the admonition that Jude gives us in Jude 3, it ought to ring in your ears right now, where Jude writes, although, he says, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. My friends, there are hills to die on. And there are things that are found in that first bucket. What about a second bucket? They would consist of urgent matters that are not essential. They are less than essential to the gospel. The gospel can still exist, even if we have differing opinions on this. But please hear me. These urgent theological issues, they will not keep someone from belonging in the kingdom. They may, however, draw a line between the church, this church and community and the next one. This is issues why, this is issues that basically form why there are different kinds of churches that follow Jesus, that aren't divided on the essentials, but are still divided on urgent matters. We could do, use things as an example, like spiritual gifts is a reason why Different churches exist in different places because they have different convictions about the expression of spiritual gifts. And even some who'd say, well, we don't even believe that there are. They would call themselves cessationists, that they've ceased. Whereas we are continuationists. We believe that the gifts continue to New Testament saints. How about church governance? The way that the church is governed would make up different reasons why different churches exist, with some being governed by a congregation, some being run by a pastor, some being led by elders like we are, and some tipping their cap to the Vatican where they get uh, direction for how they will be run. It's also issues of gender, and gender roles even within the church and within theology are reasons why different churches exist in different places. And as silly as it might sound to you or to me in a non-denominational setting, communion and baptism create massive dividing lines throughout the church, throughout church history, which may seem silly to us, but is less silly to other places. I have a friend, he was going through Presbyterian. for him, he, in order to be ordained as a Presbyterian minister... He had to sign on a document saying that he believed in pedo-baptism versus credo-baptism. Pedo, think of pediatric baptism, child or infant baptism, versus credo, I'm making a creed, I'm making a profession of faith, and that's why I'm baptizing somebody. Whereas for us as a church, we don't practice infant baptism. We look instead and believe that if someone makes a profession of faith, then they should be baptized. That's why we do it. And if you're curious, sprinkling versus full submersion, because other churches divide on that line, we think that the Bible tells us, even commands us, to be baptized, but is not prescriptive in the manner that we do it. So we do practice full submersion when possible. But even this last year, one of our elders baptized an elderly woman who was not physically able to get into a body of water by simply sprinkling her and praying with her in that moment, which I think is a beautiful thing. And other people would say, throw them out of the church for that. Now, these are second bucket issues, though. Yes, they're important. Some would even call them urgent. However, they're not essential. Where to have differences of opinion is the dividing line based upon whether or not you are in the kingdom or out of it. This is why these issues are not a part of our own church's statement of faith. They are instead listed on our website under ecclesiology and convictions, the way that we function as a church and our convictions as a church, because we believe that your adherence to these things or agreement upon them should not be the dividing line as to whether or not you're in or out with us. We do believe that it's important that you know where our convictions lie so that you know Uh, your own comfort level on these things. But this is not a dividing line where we say, if you're not believing this, then we don't count you as, as one of us. But these are not essential issues. So we don't expect you to agree to them or to sign on the dotted line for them. Can I tell you, this is also why we do a community Good Friday service with three other churches, because we don't disagree on essential issues. We do, however, with those churches have very different convictions on these second and third bucket issues. The way that they have their churches set up for, to be governed. The way that they emphasize and, and emphasize and exercise spiritual gifts looks very different than we do. And whether they are egalitarian or complementarian when it comes to gender roles in their church are things that we differ opinion-wise, but that doesn't keep us from gathering with them to worship. We might have a different church from them because our convictions look different, but yes, we can worship because the essentials are the same. Remember, please, we might exist in different churches because of those differences of opinion, but we still celebrate that we are a part of the same family of God and same body of Christ. Okay, now how about this third bucket, though? It would consist of things that we would call important theological matters. They should probably, though not, merit separation or division over. Remember, essential, urgent, and these things are important, but they're far less urgent. We should be able to remain in fellowship together with each other while remaining in the same church because these are not essential. They are not even urgent. Things like the millennium. You know, there's a reason in church history that there is not a single creed in church history that spells out what the church is to believe about the millennial reign of Christ because it's ambiguous and it's not crystal clear. That we might have our own convictions of it. We are premillennial, believing that it's yet to come and in our future. But that's our church's conviction, but it's something that we hold very loosely because these things are not essential or urgent. We call it important, but something like the rapture. You should know throughout church history, this is a minority view at best. And it might even be a view that you hold strongly, and it might even be a church or a view that our church sees that could fit in a premillennial view. But it's something that we'd never divide over. Even the topic of, can people speak in tongues? And if so, is it a tongue of an angel or is it a tongue of a different language? People will have different opinions on these things. Things even like, well, can someone speak with the prophetic word from God or creation? Was it literally a seven-day, seven 24-hour period of time for each of those seven days that God created the heavens and the earth? Some people have made this an essential issue, a first bucket issue, and said, if you reject this, you might as well reject the deity of Christ. I would disagree and say it's poetic language in early Genesis that lays it out. My personal conviction is I look at it, I go, sure, it looks like it says it's seven days, but if it's 7,000 years, because a day is as to a 1,000 years is 1,000 years as a day to the Lord, well, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. If God even used a different process to to work the amazing work and miracle of creation, I'm not going to lose sleep over it because the point of the book is not about creation. The essentials are there. It's a different category completely. Okay, now I will admit that not everything will neatly fit into one container or category. One of those things would even be the atonement. The atonement, it clearly belongs in the first container as an essential doctrine that Jesus atoned for our sins at the cross, making a way for us to be reconciled with God. However, although it belongs in the essential category, you holding what I might call a reductionist view of the atonement that maybe only emphasizes one theological aspect of Christ's atoning work would land in a much lower bucket or category. I might feel that it's important, but not essential, that you embrace a full view of Christ's atoning work at the cross that would include Christ, the exemplar, who would display and exemplify the love of God for us, as Romans 5:8 says. I also think it's important that you think of Christ in that moment as the victor, Christus Victor, they call it theologically, who in that moment, displ- disarmed principalities and powers, triumphing over them, making a public spectacle of them at the cross, as Colossians chapter two says and that you would also view the atonement, that it would include also a view of penal substitutionary atonement in that moment, where Jesus received and absolved the very wrath of God for us. Now, if you don't hold that maybe a full view of Christ's atoning work, I might think personally you're missing out on the full beauty and majesty and glory of what Christ accomplished and displayed at the cross, but I would by no means think that you're no longer saved by his work at the cross or that you need to find some new church if you don't agree with me about the manifold look at or the varying colored or different vantage points that are able to be viewed of the atonement. Believing that Christ atoned for us is essential. What that might look like though in these different theological forms should land in a much lower bucket. Remember, we're discussing these four different categories here, trying to do some theological triaging. And we've got one bucket left. And it would consist of things that I'm not saying they're worthless to consider or to have an opinion on. I am, however, suggesting that it would be foolish to divide over differences of opinion over, this, over these sorts of things that would land here. Oh, these things still do matter, we'd call this bucket but they don't matter enough to divide over. It's gonna be people's convictions they have about school for kids. Should your kids go to public, private, Christian, or homeschool? For that matter, it's when your wife is pregnant and people have opinions about home birth or in a hospital. Then the baby's born and it's breastfeeding or, or formula. Like, people have such strong opinions about things that probably just should land in this fourth category. We'd never divide over these things. It's kids in church. Do you think your kids should be in church with you here or in kids ministry because we're trying to create a church atmosphere there for them that's addressing them more specifically than me shooting over their heads and being ineffective? Well, it's up to you as a family. We leave that up to you to make that choice and decision. In Paul's day, it was meat sacrificed to idols from the public marketplace. Can you buy it from there? For us today, it's free-range versus caged, right? That's our version of it. And some people, they make that a huge deal, where this is this is immoral that you would dare to buy anything other than cage-free. And in Paul's day, it was the same thing, and he said this is just a matter of personal conviction. We'd put head coverings from Paul's day probably in that same category. From our modern setting, not from Paul's day, would be the arguments we'd have about consumption of alcohol. Yes, don't get drunk, but am I allowed to ever let alcohol touch my lips? What about if I'm cooking with it? How far do I have to reduce it in order to make sure all the alcohol is gone? You're going to have a difference of opinion than other people around you. Things like drums in worship or hymns only. This is a fan favorite of many. And, and the reason it's a fan favorite is they say, our music should not sound like the secular music that's being played on the radio. And there's a part of me that understands that, but you need to know that when the hymns were released, look in church history, there are a lot of people who said the same thing about the hymns, Because the hymn writers were pretty messy, broken people for so many of them who learned jingles in the local pub or tavern and took Christian lyrics and wrote these songs utilizing the the rhythmic patterns of those songs that were sung in the pubs and taverns, and they brought them into church and just put new words to it. And so back then people said, how dare we ever do something as evil as have music that sounds just like what they're singing there? Whereas others said, no, but let's redeem what's being said and sung there, let's stay with the times, and let's actually sing things that matter, though. But this is not an essential issue, even though some people make it. I might get in trouble with some of these, but how about King James only? Like, no, the Bible translation you read, we all know that NIV is the nearly inspired version. Like, this, how dare we have anything except the old King James, because all of us speak like that and write, like, or what about this? What about a donkey versus an elephant? Where does this one land? Although it's not a theological issue, I know that. My hope and belief though, is that your theological convictions would shape and influence your political ideology that you would hold on to. As I would also hope that it would be true about your convictions about the poor and the homeless among us, or about the immigrants who had our direction, or the treatment of the unborn. I hope all of that is shaped by your theology. However, can we all agree that a donkey or an elephant does not create the same kind of dividing line as a first bucket issue does? It's not the same, is it? As to, same as, well, did Jesus rise from the dead? Or was Jesus really God? Well, no, it's not categorically, it's not befitting to put it in there. But can we all agree that a donkey and elephant does not create the same kind of dividing line that a second bucket theological matter does? Where we find the dividing lines that lay between this church and the next one. Where unless we agree on this, we probably won't fellowship together. Does this belong there? Where to be in in this church means we all have to register to vote for the same group? Well, no, not at all. If you feel that opinions on American politics and elected American officials don't belong, though, in the fourth bucket, I'm not going to arm wrestle with you about your opinions on these matters and where they belong, because at best, they'd maybe slide up a single rung, but they're not going to land in the category of things that we call essential or urgent. Oh, it's important and it should be shaped by your theology. Don't misunderstand me. These fourth bucket issues, they still matter, but they are less important. We may even call them unimportant or insignificant, please hear me, when it comes to our willingness to be a part of the same community and to partner in gospel work side by side. You see, I would assume that many of us come across people who potentially have elevated less important matters that are maybe fourth bucket issues to a level where they are willing to divide over them, or worse still, to condemn others because of them, as if they are essential first bucket issues that define and designate Orthodox Christianity. Some people, they'd argue, they'd say, well, the tithe, is it a New Testament principle or not? That's a big, important thing to them. Well, what about the gap theory, or who are the Nephilim, or an important matter? What is a global flood? Was it really just Global as far as the world as they knew it? Or was it the whole world? Maintaining a daily devotional time, but it has to be before the sun rises. That is a first bucket issue to some. Well, did you boycott Target? Or can a Christian dance? Some can and some can't. Um, <laughs> is caffeine kosher? Like We all know these fourth bucket issues or lower things can get elevated to top-tier dividing lines in the church It wasn't long ago that we saw this play out. It played out over whether or not a church would ask people to wear a mask. It played out then when people found out about other people in their church, what they personally chose to do when offered a vaccine became a new dividing line for so many people. Where for so many, it was their reason why they picked up, left a community, and found a new one that aligned more with their own thinking. Because what they said was, those people, they lack real faith. And they lack obedience to Jesus, those cowards, those sheeple. And they're quick to move on. Oh, don't misunderstand me. These fourth bucket issues, they still matter, but they are less important. We may even call them unimportant or insignificant when it comes to our willingness to be a part of the same community and to partner in gospel work side by side. But maybe a fair question to ask is, do we even care? Like, do we even want unity? Do we even value unity? Is it it a valuable and important thing to us like it clearly is to Jesus? My friends, Christ did not die to start a tribe to go to war with the culture, much less to go to war with other Christian churches, much less to go to war with each other. He died to birth a new community and family that would stand in contrast to a divided culture because we would stand in love and unity, even in the presence of our differences, because he's not making uniformity. He's wanting the world to see sacred unity. You know, I was chatting with another local pastor friend this last week about this very thing, and we started talking about some of the reasons why we just wonder, is this is this how we got here? Like, is this what what maybe is a part of it? Like, I was just telling him, like, for me personally, I do love a good playlist, like hopping on Spotify and finding a cleverly crafted set of songs that match the genre and vibe and flavor that I like. Now, I'll tell you, it's not the same music my wife likes, and it's not the same music my girls like, and it's not the same music my son likes, but it's what I like. And what I love even more, I don't know if you noticed the new update that happened a couple of months ago, is that now with the help of AI, which makes some people nervous, but for the rest of us, we're really enjoying it so far. The playlist is never ending now. It's crafted uniquely to match my personal preferences. But what I fear is that that convenience and expectation that things just should cater to my liking and to my preferences is beginning to plague and pollute society as a whole. Because we're approaching everything with that expectation. And I fear that what it's also done is it's creeped into a church community like an undetected deadly poison where everyone can become more concerned about their preferences and taste than with the gospel taking root in their lives and Jesus being free to offend, to rebuke, to exhort, to encourage, to challenge, and to change us as we grow together. I mean, it's a hard question to answer, but have we approached our church community that Jesus prayed would be unified and that it would reflect the power of his love in that unity? Have we approached it with the expectation that we are handed a carefully curated personal church experience when we come together? Where the music is at just the right volume that I like to hear it at? Where the song selection perfectly matches my liking? where the scripture and sermon, where it affirms my stance and convictions and positions and character, but would by no means ever challenge them, where the people around me greet and include me while I refuse to meet my own expectation of others to go out of their way to make me feel welcomed and valued, where the community embraces me with humility and grace that I am unwilling to choose to demonstrate towards them when they fail to meet my preferences or my expectations. It was the British abolitionist, uh, William Wilberforce, who said, The rough edges of one person rub against the same and another and create a friction that is bound to disturb the waters of interpersonal harmony and peace. But when Christ is at work in our lives, he files down those rough edges. Instead of rubbing against each other, we work together like a well-oiled machine. Okay, take a breath just for a moment. So do you want to highlight three simple things from John 17 that Jesus said about unity? And the first is so simple. It's that unity is the desire of Jesus for his church. It's a wonderful thing to be zealous and to defend sound doctrine. I'm not going to discourage that at all. But we have to be certain and sure that the unity of the body of Christ is one of those doctrines that we are very eager to protect. Because the unity of the church is not an optional add-on for those with a gracious or kind disposition to them. It's the prayer of Jesus and the desire of the Godhead for us, and it ought to be our desire and something we are seen to prioritize and even strive for. In his book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, author Gavin Ortland he writes, our unity is so important that Jesus gave his blood for it. If we value the cross, we should value the unity of the church. Okay, now let's do this. Let's pick up the pace now for these last two things. The second thing is not just that unity is the desire of Jesus for his church, unity in his church is made possible by Jesus. Unity in his church is made possible by Jesus. Look at verse 22, where it comments that Jesus will share with us the glory with which he received from the Father. It's a very mysterious statement that's hotly debated throughout the ages, but I want you to think about what Jesus is here praying. It cannot mean that Jesus is wanting to share his divinity with us. For in Christ, the glory of God walked among us. He's not praying that we would be made into demigods. In the context, Jesus is talking, remember, about embracing his suffering, which will end his earthly life and ministry and mission. The glory, then, that he's speaking of seems to be him talking to the Father about the future glory of humanity and creation itself being redeemed and restored back into its right relationship and place. And he's here saying, let them share in that with us. This is why we're doing this, is to give them something that's eternal. Please hear me, unity in his church is made possible by Jesus because we have in Jesus something that far surpasses anything that the world could offer us. We have a secure future hope of glory with him forever. You see, what unites us is so much more important and more powerful than anything that could ever divide us. Think of it this way. As followers of Jesus, we ought to hold on to our preferences very loosely, but hang on very firmly to our Savior. But we need to remember that my Savior is not my opinions, it's not my preferences, it's not my politics, it's not a politician. My Savior is Jesus alone. And I will die on that hill but no other which is why I can remain in relationships with people who think different from me, who vote and parent and spend their money different from how I do, who prefer a different worship style or preaching approach than I do. I can remain in loving relationship even with those low-life people, those low-life forms, who say that they bleed Dodger blue and wear blue ball caps with an L and an A on them. I can even love them and put up with them because it'd be silly for me to take a third or fourth bucket issue and treat it like an essential First bucket dividing line. Remember, please, the beauty of the gospel of God's grace, his unmerited favor that he's given us, is that it frees us from the pressure to earn and win the approval of others, even of God. As I've told you before, the amazing aspect of the gospel, an amazing aspect of it, is that it leaves us both humble, which is what we need to be unified, and confident. It's probably some unoriginal thought that's like a regurgitation of a C.S. Lewis thing, but what what he talked about is that the byproduct of the gospel's transforming work in my life is that I am left both humble and confident. Humble because I see how sinful and broken I am, and I see what it costs God to rescue and redeem me and yet confident because I recognize that I don't have to earn or prove my value because I have a God who so loved and valued me that he would become breakable and broken for me. But void of the gospel's transforming work in a human's life, I cannot be those two things simultaneously. I will either be humble or confident. Void of the gospel, humble people are rarely, if ever, confident. They have a low view of themselves, but it's because they're playing a comparison game that strips them of any confidence. Just as confident people are rarely, if ever, humble. Because they've worked hard to earn their confidence. They're proud and they lack humility because of it. And here's why that matters. A humble and secure person is capable of not just receiving grace, but of also humbly extending grace and being gracious. Whereas a humble person who lacks confidence and security is terrified and pulls away from extending grace to others because they have too much to lose, too little security in life. And a proud person who lacks humility is not capable of extending or expressing grace because they see no need for it in their own life. They're too good to need it personally. So they have an unrealistic view, yes, of themselves, but now of other people, too. Their expectations of others are completely unfair. They won't live up to them, and they'd never extend grace to them. However, a humble and secure person is capable not just of receiving grace, but of living graciously, of extending grace. Humility and security are the byproduct of Jesus' work, of the gospel's work in my life as I preach the gospel to myself every single day. And that humility and security then gives me the ability and power to not only receive grace, but to also now dispense it freely to others whom I come in contact with. You see, humility leaves me with a realistic view of my own brokenness and therefore creates a gracious view of others who I am to understand are equally in need of grace and patience just as I am. And that kind of security makes me capable of being wronged and mistreated and taken advantage of without sending me into a state of fight or flight or panic. To forgive others does not challenge or rattle the depth of my security because I find my my security in being loved by Jesus. It also allows me to be confronted with my own brokenness without rattling my secure identity as a beloved adopted child of God. Oh, may I remind you today, as Jesus' disciples, we need to be careful that we're not fighting and dying on the wrong hills. We need to pursue unity through humility, and the gospel is the key to doing just that. My friends, dying on the wrong hill ends up distorting our purpose and Christ's commission to us. I mean, it's okay to have convictions, even strong opinions. It becomes an issue, and we are either willing to die on those lesser hills or willing to kill relationships with others over them. Again, quoting author Gavin Ortland, he said, pursuing the unity of the church does not mean that we should stop caring about theology, but it does mean that our love of theology should never exceed our love of real people. And therefore, we must love people amid our theological disagreements. Martin Luther famously said that human reason is kind of like a drunk man on the back of a horse. He said, you end up leaning one direction only to auto or correct and overcorrect and lean the other. And he said, it's like watching a drunk man on a horse sway back and forth. This is human reason, that what we do is we overcompensate one direction or another. So please hear me, I'm not suggesting that we swing so far to the other side of the pendulum that we become completely indifferent to theology. Clearly, the Bible is very clear that theology matters. Even the book of Acts, when the Bereans are are publicly affirmed for the fact that they search the scriptures daily to see if what was being taught was actually true. However, what I'm appealing to you to do is to remember that you and I only have one enemy, and it's not flesh and blood, and that we can be guilty of carrying a sword into a field that's ready for harvest, which is to say we can quickly be guilty of having attitudes and behavior that are antithetical to the gospel. You know, it's possible this year as a church that we will need, while the culture around us is raging and divided, we're gonna to need to slow down and refocus on Jesus again and again and again, and maybe even reclarify which bucket things belong in. Because the secondary bucket issue should not divide us if a risen Savior unites us. And I'll confess in my own life: when I let it divide us, it's not because of a lack of intellect and ability to do this, it's a lack of humility and willingness to hold on to my preferences a little more loosely. Okay, here's where we land though. It's not just that unity is the desire of Jesus for his church or even that unity in his church is made possible by Jesus. The third and final thing is that love and unity in his church are how the world knows that we are his and that he is real. Please hear me. Love and unity in his church is how the world knows that we are his and that he is real. Please don't fail to see that Jesus was convinced that the unity of the church was essential to the mission of the church. Let me say that again. Jesus believed, he says it here in John 17, that the unity of the the church is essential to the mission of the church. Make no mistake, the stakes could not be higher. Jesus said it this way, I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world will believe that you've sent me. Or skip ahead to verse 23, where he says, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. When you think about it, Jesus was sure not to leave any monument in his wake. Christianity really is the only religion in the world that doesn't have a monument or a statue or a coin with the imprint of its leader's head on it. It doesn't leave anything in its wake. The only monument that Jesus would leave behind him, the only monument of Christianity, is the living, breathing organism that is his church throughout the ages. In fact, if you want to close your Bible, you can, because I'll just close with this. And Kai, if you want to come up as we prepare to transition into a time of communion and approaching the Lord's table, I just want you to consider something. I want you to think about the church community that he left as his living, breathing memorial on the earth. Think back to this this time last year, we jumped into the book of Galatians. Remember in that book that the hill Paul was willing to die on was the salvation of humanity through grace alone, that we would be justified by faith alone, not by our human efforts to earn God's favor. Paul would then, in order to defend that hill, he'd stand in clear opposition to those who came saying that these lower bucket issues regarding cultural expectations about your diet and your clothing and your hair and your hygienic practices should be elevated, they argued, to first bucket issues that unless you first become a functional Jew, you are not a true saved individual. And Paul was willing to fight on that hill. That showdown with the Judaizers was the decision to not saddle the future of the church with the expectations of the Old Testament ceremonial law, to not elevate those cultural earmarks to first or second bucket status. And there's two things that that then implies for us that flow out of that about the future of the church. It's first that Christianity, therefore, is culturally pliable. Don't misunderstand me. Theology, essential theology of the Christian faith is unwavering. It must remain unchanged across all time in every culture. However, there's not a uniform that's passed out. There's not a vegan or Mediterranean diet that you must set aside in order to worship God. It's not some mandated day or even a time of day that we pray or worship. Do you see even in those things the uniqueness of Christianity? Because if you think about the religions, your mind should go to Buddhist monks who have the same haircut. Or Muslim men and women who are mandated to stop and pray at set times throughout the day. Or Hindus' absence from the drive through line at In-N-Out Burger. Or a Mormon who'd ride a 10-speed bike. Or an Orthodox Jew who seems to all wear a standard uniform. If a, for me, I love a good if-then statement. If, if, think of this, if we do not have these cultural earmarks for the world to look at us and know that we are Jesus' disciples because of our matching haircuts or 10-speed bikes or dietary restrictions or head coverings or communal dwellings, if that's true, then what are they to find and how are they to recognize Christians across the globe throughout the ages in every single culture? Jesus said they will know you by your love one for another. Christianity, therefore, needs to be protected from pollution of cultural traditions and standards that become expectations that shift from low-bucket issues or no-bucket issue and become an essential issue. We have to be very careful to not allow ourselves to begin to think or say, if you want to be a real Christian, a full Christian, you got to look like us. you got to dress like us. you got to worship like us. you got to format your gathering like us. you got to listen to a long sermon like we do. If We do not have these cultural earmarks for the world to look at us and know that we are Jesus' disciples because of our identical regimented personal lives and identical regimented public gatherings, because of our uniformity. If that doesn't exist, then what are they to find and how are they to recognize Christians throughout the ages, across the globe, in every single culture? Jesus said they will know you by your love for one another. And Jesus here in John 17 tells us that that love will be evident in our unity, in our love for God and our love for one another. You see, unity is the desire of Jesus for his church. Unity in his church is made possible by Jesus because of the gospel. I'm left humble enough to pursue it. And love and unity in his church are how the world knows that we are his and that he is real. What brings us together as the church is Jesus. But how will we fare in his absence? That is why Jesus prayed. We will have to keep him and his gospel in the preeminent place and position in our lives and in our church if we are to make it forward in the way that he's desired as unified. And so Jesus, we look your direction to repent and to confess that, Jesus, sometimes this is not as high a value for us as it should be. Jesus, this clearly mattered to you. And so we pray that it would matter to us and that we would be gracious and kind in speaking about other churches and places and that we would be gracious and kind even with one another here who do look different and think different in many different areas. And Jesus, we're praying for your help to do this that you by your spirit would enable us to possess the humility that's needed for us to live unified, especially as we head into what will be such a divisive year. And so Jesus, we look your direction, and when we look your direction, we see a cross, and that's why we pause to approach the Lord's table to remember what you've done for us in Jesus' name. So why don't we take a moment as we sing this song and just prepare our own hearts to partake of the elements of communion together.